For several years, we have had the ability to create artificially generated text articles. More recently, audio and video synthesis have been feasible for artificial intelligence to generate. Rosebud is a company that creates animated virtual characters that can speak. Users can generate real or fictional presenters easily with Rosebud. Dmitry Pletnikow is an engineer with Rosebud, and he joins the show to talk about the technology and engineering behind Rosebud. To support Software Engineering Daily with a paid subscription, you can go to softwaredaily.com and become a paid subscriber. You can get ad-free episodes, and it would really help us out. Thanks for listening. Dimitri, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jeff. You work on Rosebud. Rosebud is a system for generating the faces of human models. Why is that useful? That is a good question. So what Rosebud AI does is extends beyond that, beyond just generating uh, human faces. Our vision is to enable people to express express their creativity at the speed of thought, uh, so to say. And uh, generating human faces is obviously a part of it because like, no matter what kind of art you generate, there are likely faces and characters in it. Uh, if it's a video, video recording or like a sketch for a movie or a book, like an illustrated narrative of any kind or an ad or uh, some kind of poster, you, you have to have a person in most cases, have to have a face. So that's why the first product uh, that, well, one of the first products that Rosebud AI has been focusing on uh, has been generating human faces and allowing users to uh, edit how those faces look. But uh, what we have launched recently goes beyond that. Uh, specifically, the uh, Talking Heads product is mostly about videos and uh, driving uh, the artificial or real characters, human faces with uh, with your own voice or with your own video or with just the text. But you write that uh, it all starts with the face. Tell me more of the types of customers, the types of users that would need these AI-generated models. There is, of course, the uh, fashion use case. Uh, we have been uh, focusing on that uh, for some time. And now we are looking at uh, other audiences. There is a lot of interest. We, ha- we have customers from different niches and uh, people coming up with the uh, use cases. We have uh, uh, people who are playing games and they want to animate, essentially have a character. They want to animate with uh, kind of an alternate persona. That's uh, one use case. Uh, so w- what I want to say is uh, we build the technology which can drive a great variety of different use cases. It's very flexible and uh, the specific markets that we address are varied. I'm probably not the best person in the company to answer this question. Alicia is, uh, uh, is the founder of Rosebud AI. She's much closer to the customer uh, customers and uh, talking to customers every day. Should be in a better position to answer this question. Well, that's okay. I think we've got the, the product use case and we can start to dive into the engineering a little bit more. I think it's worth going over the topic of generative models. Could you explain what a generative model is? Generative model is a machine learning model which can generate video or audio or visual still frame unconditionally, essentially from noise or conditionally. Conditionally in a sense that we can control uh, what it outputs. As an example of very popular uh, generative models, uh, uh, BigGAN and StyleGAN, 
and uh, strictly speaking you can run them from any noise vector uh, uses input and uh, get a realistic image out of it but the most powerful use case for this models is when uh, you have a way to control what's been generated uh, so instead of getting some random image uh, of human you can choose to generate a human who is who is smiling or who is uh, have short hair long hair does give you a, a good impression of what a generated model is absolutely tell me about some of the applications of generative models that have arisen over the last couple of years when they've become popularized? We have seen a lot. So I think one of the first products uh, in the space was, first applications in the space was just generating fake people and using them as uh, avatars, which can be used uh, for uh, users who want to maintain a certain level of uh, anonymity or pretend to be someone else. Uh, that's more of a kind of negative use case. and. Yeah, just generating art. There's a uh, well-known project called uh, Art Reader. In uh, Art Reader, people just try to explore the space of a generated model and see what interesting images they can find there. Cool faces or cool abstract compositions or landscapes. Uh, For Atrocebot AI, we use it as a building block, as a component uh, component to generate rich visuals. So it's part of what we do it's not like the whole thing we have a lot of logic and uh, machine learning going on beyond just generated models it is an important part of pretty much every product we launch so rosebud has started as this generative model system for creating human models can you walk me through the engineering stack required to create a human model are you interested in full well when we're talking about human model, we can talk about just the face or a full body. And uh, the face is a strictly simpler, easier problem uh, to handle because... Sure. Uh, we can focus on the face. So with the face, if you think, like the reason why I, I say face is easier and simpler to generate is because face is a solid body uh, in a sense, like geometrically speaking, it's uh, symmetric. It's easy to uh, align and orient it, which makes it an easier target for uh, machine learning algorithms. Uh, so to generate uh, a face, say with a StyleGAN, you, you, the uh, the project is open source. Uh, StyleGAN was developed by uh, NVIDIA, and they have uh, iterated quite a bit on the project. So that's probably the most popular way of uh, generating faces, like completely artificial faces. You, you check out a GitHub project. You can do it in a, even in the Google Colab and get the weights. Uh, the weights for the model are also publicly available, the ones that uh, NVIDIA has uh, prepared and you can start generating the faces. The process itself is straightforward. You sample pseudo-random vectors and you push them through the model and the model uh, gives back the pixels and that's how you get get the face. If you're talking about uh, controlling uh, this output, then the space, the model has uh, like completely random, pseudo-random Gaussian vectors as inputs, uh, but then there is an intermediary, uh, intermediate step of model generation, this intermediary, intermediate step is called uh, D-latence. D-latence have interesting properties, which uh, NVIDIA team has discovered, and they can be controlled and combined. So essentially, if you have a D-latent kind of intermediate representation of the face, which is a 512-dimensional vector, you can do some algebra on them. So you can have two faces represented by two 512-dimensional vectors. Uh, you, you can 
interpolate between the two and generate the frames which gradually change from looking like one face to looking like another face. And if you have uh, three vectors, you can try to explore the space in between and see how you can combine the two appearances to get the some completely new appearance. So that's where the question of we are moving from the space of like trivial generation to the question of, okay, how can we control this exploration and how we can uh, expose that as a UI to the end user, if the end user is interested in generating a very uh, particular, very specific face, how do we let a non-technical creator, artist, to explore this space efficiently and intuitively? Th that's something that we have been working on and that's visible in uh, several of our products. So specifically, if you're talking about creative app, uh, which uh, is uh, centered on editing human faces, we have the features uh, such as moving along the directions of uh, facial expressions. So that is very similar to what I was talking about. Uh, if we have in our model, we have a latent space, we can let the user explore the space along predetermined directions and starting with, starting with one face, explore how this face may look like if it has a wider smile or more of a sour face. But it, it is a very interesting and I would say open problem currently in machine learning, how to efficiently explore the latent space of uh, generated models. Because generated models are expensive to train from scratch. The data sets involved are huge. And if you're talking about um, multimedia well, like visual or audio or video generation, data sets are big and the compute requirements to train the models from scratch are high. So it is virtually impossible to train a model from scratch for very specific use case. The question becomes, how can we train one model, let's say is very good at uh, generating faces and how we can then control it to get to the very specific use case, to the very specific product that is useful for, um, for the people. What have been some of the difficult engineering problems in building out the ability to generate these faces? Generating faces themselves is quite straightforward. I would say the difficulty comes in what we do with the faces as a next step. Uh, so let's say if you have a face and let's say you start with an image, right? And you want to edit a face in an existing image. Uh, to do it efficiently with a generative model, like one way to do it is to find a latent representation of this face in the latent space of this particular generated model uh, or like the whole body, and then doing some algebra in the latent space uh, to make the edits which you want to achieve. Uh, finding the latent corresponding to the pixels is a pretty hard task because uh, the space of uh, pixels and the space of uh, latents in, in the generator model are matched through like highly non-linear generator uh, module. And in general case, finding later, a latent representation of given pixels is computationally intensive. It's an optimization problem in itself. And it is similar to, uh, in, in its um, compute requirements, it's similar to training or optimizing the model. Essentially, we are traveling in the multidimensional latent space, uh, trying to find the local optimum and that, that's computationally intensive. Uh, so that's something that we also experienced in our face uh, editing products. There is no really one great solution to it. It 
goes back to the user experience and how to frame the product in such a way that the process that can take minutes is acceptable to the user. So it comes down to designing the product from the ground up for the user to expect that uh, and to, in the UI and in how the product works, account for that, make it a great experience for the user in the end. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is um, once, let's say you generated the face, what do you want to do with this face? Like if it's just a headshot and you needed a headshot, uh, then you're done. That's great. So let's say if you want to use a fake uh, face as an avatar, you're done here. But in most cases, uh, if you generate a, a face and you control this generation, you want to do something with it, in particular, uh, put it back into a video frame or a still photo. Uh, and that takes, um, that is, that can be computationally uh, intensive as well. Uh, and usually it's hard to transfer the GPU. So the question becomes of, okay, if we have the technology, let's say we have machine learning endpoint that generates faces, and we have another machine, uh, another endpoint, not necessarily even machine learning, that puts this face back uh, into the image. How do we efficiently connect these uh, endpoints? Because we, at this point, we transfer uh, high-resolution images between the two. Uh, so the challenge becomes of uh, becomes collocating them in the network and figuring out a way of maybe using some shared storage instead of sending the images over the network back and forth between the endpoints. And the reason why we even have this challenge in the first place is that at Rosebud AI, we are users of uh, microservices architecture. So all our machine learning endpoints are microservices that run in a Kubernetes cluster. And we, the processes that we automate uh, span, always span multiple services, multiple endpoints. Can you tell me more about your choice of tooling across your stack, particularly the machine learning tooling? Sure. It is a good question, first of all, because what we the technology the technologies that we use often dictated by uh, the availability of tooling. So we try to be very pragmatic in our choices of technology. And in machine learning, we kind of locked into the Python ecosystem, of course, because that's uh, that's what modern machine learning research uses. We, as much as everyone else, we uh, of course use uh, notebooks. Uh, Jupyter notebooks, uh, which run in our Kubernetes cluster on the cloud, or in the cloud. And beyond that, package our endpoint in Flask. So Flask serves as a HTTP adapter, essentially, controlling the entrance into uh, the entry point into the machine learning logic itself. And then everything is orchestrated by uh, Kubernetes. We use uh, I guess the tools that we use on a daily basis are mostly DevOps tools, which facilitate uh, deploying uh, development versions of the endpoints. And even during the development, because as developers, we don't have uh, don't necessarily have a GPU locally. So I, I'm using MacBook Pro as my main uh, development environment, and I don't have a GPU, and some models must be run on the GPU. So in that case, we fall back to essentially cloud-native development where we use Scaffold with Kubernetes and hot reloading of the code where if I edit the code, uh, it's uploaded to the cloud, to the Kubernetes cluster, and the running image, Docker image, is patched with my changes and I can immediately see, well, pretty much immediately, like within seconds, I can see the updated endpoint that I'm working on in running in the cloud. 
I would say as far as tooling goes for machine learning specifically, uh, we try to do as much research as possible or as much as ex experimentation as possible in the Jupyter notebook because that's uh, the easiest, most straightforward environment for experimentation with machine learning models. And then once we are like very close to uh, productionizing uh, our work, we either do local Flask-based endpoints or cloud-native development. And the reason why uh, Jupyter is a much simpler environment uh, for these kind of experiments is that when we talk about machine learning logic uh, and models, uh, there is a significant latency of loading machine learning weight, uh, the model's weights uh, into the GPU. And if we uh, restart the application every time, like uh, as we do like a development cycle, now uh, that takes precious seconds uh, here and there, and uh, that uh, adds up. With uh, Jupyter, we can maintain the state of uh, the program, the state of the algorithm and experiment on individual pieces without having to restart the whole thing, read the potentially uh, gigabyte large weights file from the disk and loading those weights uh, into the GPU memory. Are there any frictions in the machine learning tooling stack that are frustrating you these days? This question is a little harder for me to answer because as an engineer, my mind always races to solutions. So that's probably, I'm, I wouldn't make a great startup founder because where I see the problem, I immediately see a solution using existing tools. So for me, if uh, there is friction, I, my default uh, instinct is to see how I can overcome this friction and uh, barely, oftentimes it doesn't register. <laughs> consciously uh, for me. I guess the whole transition from TensorFlow 1 to TensorFlow 2 was a little fr frustrating because uh, a lot of code bases uh, do not transition smoothly. Uh, I know they have uh, upgrade guides uh, and there is a, almost an automated way to upgrade the code from TensorFlow 1 to TensorFlow 2, but the internal workings of TensorFlow 2 is sufficiently different where code well optimized for TensorFlow 1 becomes very non-optimized for TensorFlow 2. Again, like th th that's not really a big issue for, for uh, me personally or even for the team because most models we, which we have been developing recently are in PyTorch. So that's not a big, uh, big deal. I, I guess the whole fact that machine learning development requires a GPU in many cases, that's, uh, that's a friction point. Again, there, there is awesome tooling to facilitate with that and do uh, cloud-native development or launch a... Um, Jupyter notebook in the cloud on the GPU machine the development there. So we have uh, solutions for this. One friction point is, and I'm sure like for everything that I'm talking about, there are probably companies out there that are working on solving this right now, or even there are products on the market and I'm not aware. But just to iterate, uh, let's say the, uh, the weights for the models, these are huge files. And let's say if we want to version them, Git or GitHub is not uh, great for that because these are files which are go into gigabytes and yeah we can use a large file storage uh, in github and manage those there but uh, it becomes very inefficient fast and breaks down easily unless you're like super careful with the uh, uh, git lfs uh, so what we end up doing is like very 90s solution uh, just a shared network file system in the cloud which is expensive. So, so both AWS and GCP have uh, similar offerings. In GCP, it's a file store. In AWS, it's a elastic file storage. I think that's how it's called, uh, which offers a 
um, multi-client read and write functionality and we just store our model weights there and uh, in the context of a Kubernetes cluster we have this um, file system mounted as a, a persistent volume to every of the production pods. Uh, I do intuitively feel that this is far from a perfect solution and it uh, feels, feels brittle. It hasn't failed us so far. Specifically, it's not very important for us that the read and write I.O. speed is not great on these things because we usually have to read the model weights once once the endpoint starts up and loads the model weights into the GPU. So that's not a big issue, but it's not an optimal solution. Another problem that I feel have not been solved very well is... Uh, uh, which comes up when we uh, do training is data sets management. Again, like at Rosebud AI, we work with uh, audio and video, and uh, that means that our data sets are huge, go into hundreds of gigabytes. And if you want to launch several experiments for training models, how do you make sure that uh, every experiment has fast access to the data set? Because in machine learning, when you do an experiment, when you train a model, you have to go over your data set multiple times. And that's how the model trains and optimizes. So how to ensure that it's cost efficient and how to ensure that uh, reading data set multiple times off some storage is cost efficient and multiple parallel experiments using the same data, data set do not compete on I.O. And our solution so far has been uh, based on creating putting data set on the EBS drive or like similarly in GCP and just creating copies of that, making a snapshot and creating copies of the uh, cloud drive uh, from the snapshot and each experiment uh, having its own copy of data set. Uh, that kind of add, it adds to the manual uh, effort in launching experiments. We have optimized that pretty well. But generally, I think it's not a very well-solved problem because you cannot use elastic storage, either Google Cloud Storage or S3 for large data sets. Latency is high and throughput is low, uh, and the GPUs will be uh, idling most of the time if you put your video or audio data set there. So that's, that's what comes to mind immediately uh, about machine learning friction. Do you think we could go deeper into some of the dynamics of the actual models, like the the generative adversarial networks and the mechanics behind training generative adversarial networks? Sure. Let's, let's do it. Do GANs require a lot of data to train? What's the main challenge in working with GANs? GANs do require a lot of data to train, much like any machine learning model. There, there is recent research and there are augmentations techniques, uh, augmentation techniques that reduce uh, the data load, but the, the whole space of machine learning is about converting data into algorithms, pretty much. That's uh, the whole promise of um, machine learning, right? So, so generating models are not different in that regard. They need a lot of data. That is not the biggest difficulty, I would say, because so the reason why it's not the biggest difficulty is because generative models naturally are trained on unlabeled data. So the whole point of generative model is to find a way to represent a whole domain, a whole of sp space of things. Uh, so if you're talking about generative model uh, that generates faces, the point of the model is to understand what the face is 
And once the model understands that, it can generate realistically looking faces with sufficient uh, variety and ways to control what's being generated. Uh, but the generation process itself, be because we want the generated model to understand what the domain is and how it looks, we don't need label data. So for generative purposes, getting data sets is in a sense much simpler than classical uh, supervised machine learning where you uh, train a classifier uh, or even a, a reinforcement learning algorithm. Just get the data out there that you observe directly uh, with zero, zero labeling. So let's say with faces, uh, one of the most commonly used data sets for faces is called uh, Celeb A. And it's, uh, I believe it's just uh, human faces scraped from uh, IMDB database because uh, IMDB website has a ton of headshots of um, actors and that's a readily available data set. Or you can take shows from YouTube, uh, slice them into frames and find identify the frames which contain the face and you have another data set of faces. And if you want to, let's say, train a generated model to get a good representation of the face geometry, uh, like in 3D space, uh, again, like you, you, you take a YouTube show with a host and the host moves his uh, or her head around. And that's uh, how you get the frames of the same person, the same face uh, in exactly the same setting uh, from different angles. So in, in that sense, uh, obtaining data sets for generated models is easier. And that goes to the famous Locaic uh, from uh, Jan LeCun. Uh, presentation where he he's talking about how uh, generative modeling is like the base of the cake and the supervised machine learning is uh, the frost frosting and reinforcement learning is the cherry on top and uh, he specifically refers to the availability of data sets like pretty much any data we have around can be used for generative modeling in the broad sense including uh, generative adversarial uh, networks and as a case in point the uh, GPT-3 uh, is a generated model that is very good at generating um, fluent uh, English and not just English text has been trained in, uh, trained in unsupervised fashion on a data set which is huge, uh, has zero supervision and not very hard to build if you have resources. So the difficulty in uh, generative models training starts when you decide to use GANs. So GANs stand for Generative Adversarial Networks. And the, the essence of GANs is that uh, you have two neural networks. One tries to produce a fake, and another decides if, uh, what the first uh, if the input is fake or real. And uh, through the competition between the two, the generator learns how to uh, generate realistic outputs. And the discriminator essentially ends up uh, assigning 50-50 probability. And that's the, the holy grail, the goal of training. Again, making the, getting to the point where a discriminator cannot tell a fake from a real a sample. And the generator can generate very realistic samples. And that's where the difficulty lies, because if you think about it, that's not a stable equilibrium. Disturbance, like, it, it is a very natural uh, failure case in GANs where uh, the gener generator learns to output just one very specific, realistically looking sample. So if, if you're talking about faces, one failure scenario would be the generator learning how to output every particular face. And discriminator learns that this particular face, no matter how realistically looking it is, is always fake. 
and the training process breaks down from the, from there. It's really hard to recover the training process once the generator stabilizes around one particular sample. And then there is a question of mem- memorizing the data set where through discriminator, generator can learn to can learn to memorize samples. Doesn't happen as often, but can also happen. Uh, so generally with GANs, the training process is unstable. There are many hacks, like the, there are whole guides and uh, papers written about what are good hacks to make sure that GANs uh, do not diverge, that they, uh, they are stable, but they're hacks. There, there's no one silver bullet. I think if we're talking about GANs training, uh, the most promising intuitive idea I've uh, observed recently is originated in this community. Uh, there's a Discord community. They are into generating Fox faces for, for Sonos, that, that's the word. And the hack they uh, developed in this community is uh, uh, essentially reversing the loss. Uh, so at, at the point where either generator or discriminator becomes very good at what they're doing, they're kind of uh, reversing the uh, loss function and deliberately starting to make it less good. And that stabilizes the, the training quite a bit. And another difficulty with GANs is uh, even telling like how it's going, because unlike in the supervised machine learning setting, there, there is no good metric to tell you if uh, the training is uh, proceeding well or not. Like the, the, the lost, uh, the lost uh, curves in GAN training are misleading. So what's being used is uh, different visual scores, which kind of objectively estimate the quality of uh, the fakes. Uh, but that again, just heuristics. They're not perfect scores. So uh, it, when training GANs, what we end up doing is spending a lot of time just looking at the samples ourselves, uh, visualizing the samples, visualizing like different stages of the training process, uh, seeing how it progresses, and trying to infer from there if uh, the training is converging, diverging, the results getting better, worse. Are we stuck? Should we? stop the experiment that we've done training here uh, that becomes very subjective there is no good hard rule for it do you have to spend a lot of your time studying the cutting edge of of research of of uh, artificial intelligence research or do you do you mostly spend your time on implementation i myself i would say i spend most of my time on uh, implementation it is better fits with my background and uh like of course, I I probably read at least one white paper a week, maybe two or three. Um, my goal is again like all this practical is not about trying to see, not just curiosity about what's out there, uh, but my uh, reading of white papers is always motivated by a specific product that we are working on or a specific challenge we have, and trying to understand uh, a collective experience out there because white paper. A good white paper uh, summarizes a lot of experience that people, a team, a research team, has accumulated. Uh, and if it's written well, we can learn from it. You use both AWS and GCP. Can you tell me more about the workloads and functions that you prefer for each of those cloud providers? Sure. We have uh, all our production workloads are in uh, GCP. That was mostly historical Random choice, I would say. 
Part of the motivation was that uh, for the business logic, for the applications that we built, we use uh, Firebase, which we're big fans of, scales very well, and uh, the tooling is great with uh, Firebase, helps us launch new applications and new features very quickly. And uh, Firebase being part of the GCP, we kind of get better network latency right out of the, uh, right out of the box. And in GCP, we use um, Google Kubernetes engine, G, uh, GKE. Uh, all our production machine learning endpoints run in a, a Kubernetes cluster in Google Cloud. Uh, and uh, for training, for uh, training new models, that's very offline process in the sense we, it doesn't have to be connected to the public in any way to the world. Uh, we use um, AWS, and again, that's mostly a historical choice. In AWS, we also use the Kubernetes cluster and launch our experiments in the Kubernetes cluster. Uh, so, strictly speaking, there would be much difference for us to move from one to another for either production purposes or experimentation purposes. We started doing that at some point and uh, we continue that kind of separation. AWS for experiments and uh, GCP for production. As far as tooling in uh, each cloud goes, I I would say that at this point I have mild preference for GCP. I cannot put my finger on exactly what's better about the Google Cloud. Maybe it is that the interface is slightly less confusing and the, the Google Cloud feels more like a single product, unlike in uh, AWS, you have a, a huge variety of how uh, different uh, screens and pages look depending on uh, what service you're using. There is slightly less coherence in uh, what AWS offers. Uh, the services don't, well, they, they play nicely with each other, mostly. GCP feels more of a single-minded product. But they're both, honestly, kind of a kitchen sink offerings, I believe, which kind of makes sense. They, uh, they compete with each other and other cloud offerings. So we learn to use what, it, what we got. Talking more about technologies head-to-head, how would you compare TensorFlow and PyTorch today? It's like a Veeam and Emacs debate of these days, I feel like. Objectively, we use uh, PyTorch much more these days than uh, TensorFlow. And many research teams still uh, produce TensorFlow 1 models. So I, I would say we barely use TensorFlow 2, if at all. I cannot come up with a single TensorFlow 2 base model uh, that we have in production or in the research phase. It's mostly PyTorch. My personal preference is, yeah, it's really hard to tell. I kind of like the computational graph uh, idea that uh, uh, TensorFlow represents more explicitly than PyTorch. But I think as a developer, as an engineer, I uh, like PyTorch more. It, it just feels more natural, more uh, imperative kind of development. We, as far as scaling and uh, like this more logistical uh, aspects of uh, productionizing machine learning research, I would say there isn't much difference between the two. They're both fairly straightforward to productize. I think in in our case, and uh, I'm sure in for many other teams, it boils down to existing open source research that we want to understand and potentially reuse parts of it, what it was written in, if it was in TensorFlow or PyTorch. And most of the research these days uh, comes out 
in PyTorch. So that's part of the reason why we are using PyTorch more. Image generation is still a developing field. So is uh, video generation. And there's a lot of new architectures. There's new techniques being developed in the research community. What do you see in the near future? What we are seeing, uh, like objectively, and I touched on this point uh, briefly, controlling existing models. So so much like with uh, GPT-3, what I expect to see in the future more is uh, big budget teams training large models, which will exceed the performance of existing models and like blow our minds. And we will take these models and we will learn to control them much more. We will understand what's going on under the hood. Uh, and without training completely new ways of representing uh, audio or video or text, we will learn how to control it more. And even with the GPT-3, we're seeing like this whole, the whole teams focusing on how a prompt can be formulated to achieve a certain level of certain kind of generation and making GPT-3 solve a particular kind of problem, which it was not designed to do. So that's what I see in the space of other generated models as well. So if you're talking about images, I expect to see probably an evolution of uh, BigGAN because uh, BigGAN is unique uh, compared to, say, StyleGAN. StyleGAN is awesome at generating realistically looking objects from a particular domain, say faces, landscapes, uh, animals, cars. Uh, but then uh, StyleGAN is single domain architecture, while BigGAN has was successful in generating multi-domain domain images. So the same model essentially learned how to represent a wider world. So what I expect to see is more models like BigGAN, which, which can represent a wider variety of visuals at high fidelity, probably some kind of trade-offs between the fidelity of uh, generation and the speed of generation. And uh, hopefully uh, we and the rest of the community will be able to have access to those models and learn how to uh, control the outputs uh, that these models produce, uh, learn uh, to control the models. And through that, build products in which we can leverage this model in generating persuasive um, visuals. Can you tell me more about products that you anticipate building in Rosebud? Yeah, I can probably start with the uh, with the vision for the company, uh, which is enabling everyone in many different uh, situations to express their creativity and create art, essentially. So uh, our future products likely in the nearest future will all be focused on video generation. Uh, we have the Talking Heads product and we are actively working on adding features to it and extending what it can do. Again, going back to the question of uh, controllability, making sure that we can control what's being generated uh, and surfacing those controls uh, to the user. So from the perspective of what the end user would see along that dimension in the nearest future, I expect Rosebud AI to launch more products in the video generation space. As far as technology problems and challenges that we are going to solve and solving right now, they are all centered about how to control powerful generated models and how to surface those, those controls to the user. And that uh, includes not just technical challenges, not just fundamental research challenges, but also the UX challenges. Because if we have 
500 levers, we cannot expose all of them to the end user. That will not make sense. So there is a big question of good design of the applications that we build. Yeah, I guess overall moving in the direction of creating art. So one helpful way I think about it is you have a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have, say, photorealistic virtual reality experience. So you put a person into like completely realistic environment and there is like zero art in it. Let's say we can capture with highest possible fidelity a cathedral somewhere and I put the VR headset on and I can see this uh, cathedral and every little detail of it and there is zero art in that because we're just replicating the reality to the highest degree possible. And then if you're thinking about a picture you take, say, with your phone, you are still working within the base of the real world, uh, what the real world has to offer as far as visuals go, but you have control over frame and lighting and which moment exactly you capture so, so that there is a way for you to put in some artistic intention into the photo. And then let's say you have a collage and you can combine uh, completely different unrelated uh, visuals into one art piece and something that would not even coexist in the real world. And through that, you can, can uh, tell a story or convey an emotion, an emotion. And like on the completely complete end of the spectrum, you have uh, like the paintings where everything is fictional, uh, every single piece of it. So uh, the products that we will be launching at Rosebud AI are towards this uh, end of the spectrum where uh, anyone can start with some realistically looking and maybe pre-existing visuals about the real world, but essentially be able to tell a story or convey an emotion while not being an artist themselves, potentially. So we want to facilitate that that process where if I, let's say, like as an example, uh, if I have a story in my head and I want to tell you this story in a visual way, how do I do it? Like these days it's really hard for me to do because I'm not a painter myself. I don't have uh, the budget to hire actors and the director and the writer to get a script and shoot a movie. I just want to tell you a story. So what is the way for me to do that? Uh, there is no easy way to do it. What we build at Rosebud AI, tools of expression that would allow me to tell the story uh, exactly as I see it in my head. So I'm gonna transfer what in my head uh, with a minimal effort on my side and uh, communicate this to the world. That's very ambitious, and I do expect that a large part of that is not just machine learning specifically or generative models uh, and the difficulty of controlling them and training them, but also in the user experience. Because uh, if I'm not a technical user, what kind of levers should I have for a powerful tool like that to tell my story? Well, that seems like a good place to close off. Dimitri, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It was great.